0: If you would, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, we'll be looking at verses 22 through 28 this morning. We'll be wrapping up our series on Melchizedek as we wrap up chapter 7. I've enjoyed, uh, enjoyed greatly bringing this to you. I pray that it has been clear, edifying, and enjoyable. I pray most of all that I've been able to make much of Jesus and that God has been glorified. Uh, Last week we tried to answer one question in verse 11 where the author of Hebrews says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So the question was, why do we need another priest? Why do we need another priest to come from Melchizedek? And last week we tried to answer that with six reasons. Six reasons why the, a better priest came from the order of And Those reasons were that number one, Jesus was from a better tribe, right? He came from the tribe of Judah, the kingly tribe, but he also came from the order of Melchizedek. Number two, Jesus' priesthood attains perfection. As we discussed last week, the Levitical priesthood could not bring any type of perfection. They kept having to go and offer sacrifices over and over and over again because it couldn't attain perfection. And the, the Levitical priests died. They constantly died and they had to bring in another priest. Number three, Jesus' priesthood was forever. Again, as we said, that his priesthood is forever because he has the indestructible life. He lives forever. He has already rose from the dead. And number four, this change in the priesthood changed everything. It changed everything. It changed the way they worshipped. All those things back in the Old Testament and old covenant structure pointed towards Christ. Pointed towards him. He is a fulfillment of all those things. And then we looked at number five, the priesthood from the line of Melchizedek brings us true and better hope. We don't have to hope that our, our sacrifice was good enough. We don't have to hope that uh, what the priest did was good enough. Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in the one who rose from the dead, who offered up himself as a sacrifice for many. We have better hope. And then number six, Jesus' of priesthood is also better and more hopeful because it is sealed with an oath. God promised it. He promised it before the foundation of the world that those whom he had given to Christ would be saved. That through his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension would conquer and defeat death for those who put their faith and their trust in Jesus. We've also been discussing how to read our Bibles What lens do we read our Bibles through? We talked about topology a few weeks ago. Uh, What I want us to see today when we're reading the Old Testament, when we're reading the Bible, um, what I want us to see is that God constantly heightens his promises. He constantly heightens his promises. He heightens his grace. He heightens his saving actions. And as we move towards the New Testament, God doesn't merely repeat his deeds of the past... But he does greater things. Not just a little bit better, but much greater, much better. He constantly heightens his grace and mercy. (coughs) We have now a second Exodus involving a spiritual deliverance, right? We have a new covenant, a better covenant. One sealed with an oath, as we've been talking about. We have a new creation. Right? All of us now who are in Christ are a new creation. We have a new people, which includes Jews and Gentiles. Praise God for that, right? We have a greater Moses. We have a greater David, a better king, a true king, a sinful king. We have a greater Elijah, the great prophet, the best prophet, the true and perfect prophet. So these promises are so much greater that no mere man could accomplish them. God himself must come, the servant of God, must come bearing God's name, bearing his name. And the Spirit of God must come and not just come down upon people, as you see in the Old Testament, but the Spirit of God comes and he indwells people. So as we read through Scripture, that's what we should be looking for, is these greater accomplishments by God. Looking for a greater and better promise. That only God himself can accomplish. That is what Jesus has done. And I believe that's what the author of Hebrews is teaching the Hebrew people in this book. And then in turn teaching us. Jesus accomplishes all those things. He is better than all those things in the Old Testament. So let's read our text this morning. Hebrews chapter 7 verses 22 through 28. Verse twenty two. Since this makes Jesus the guarantee of our of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always makes lives to make intercession for men. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever father i thank you again for your word lord i thank you that we can gather on this lord's day and worship you so lord i pray that as you speak to us through your word that you will change us lord that you will uh, draw us to repentance And draw us to more faith, Lord, in that we will honor you and worship you more through your word and through what you have accomplished. Lord, thank you that you did not leave us in our sins. Lord, that you sent your son to come to this earth to live the life we can never live. To die the death that we so much deserve. To take the father's wrath upon yourself. To defeat death. To rise again. To ascend into heaven where you sit on your throne, interceding for us, saving us, and drawing us closer to you. And Lord, I pray that as we study your word, that you will do that now. Draw us to yourself, Lord. May you be glorified in all that we do, and all that we say, and all that we think, and all that we feel. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So in verses 22 through 24, we see. The author again repeat the fact that Jesus, that his priesthood is forever. Because he is a priest permanently. I love the word the author uses here, that he holds his priesthood forever. He holds it forever. He holds it permanently. Nothing can take this away from him. His is a surety or the guarantee of a better covenant. I believe this is the only time that this Greek word surety is used in the New Testament. The word surety is a legal term referring to someone who assumes the obligation of another. Jesus will fulfill the covenant of another. Jesus, he assumes the obligation of another. He will fulfill the covenant in all of its provisions. Okay? In this role, Jesus is not just a mediator who arranges agreement between two parties. He didn't just say, hey, God, you come here, and, and hey, you people, you come here, and y'all, y'all work it out. He doesn't do that. He realizes both positions. He guarantees both sides. Okay? As a guarantor, he is, assumes all of the responsibility that the obligations of the contract, contract will be fulfilled. Jesus guarantees this. <clears throat> Jesus' better covenant is not temporary. It is both binding and effective. Not weak and useless, as we saw in the Levitical priesthood. This oath was sure to secure its purposes. Okay, the oath we talked about earlier, the oath we talked about last week. There's no question that the Messiah would forgive the sins of those who believe in him. This should also bring... This would also bring people. Into fellowship with God. Permanently. Okay. He installed him. Jesus. As a priest forever. And Jesus guarantees it. We also see this again in verse 28. God makes his only begotten son. A perfect priest forever. Okay. Just think of God's people in Moses. Okay. Right. They're. They're. They're sinners, yet they're, they're slaves in Egypt, right? God chooses Moses to bring his people out of slavery and bring them into the promised land. What does he do? He sends the plagues. He parts the Red Sea. He brings them out. He feeds them manna right from heaven. He gives them water from rock, uh, from a rock. He, he sends them. He's taking them to the promised land. And then Moses says, y'all stay here. I'm going to introduce you to God, Okay? I'm bringing you to God. I'm going to go up on the mountain. I'm going to get the Ten Commandments from God. I'm going to get God's word, and I'm going to bring it back to you. okay? Because you are his people. He's brought you out. You are God's people. While Moses goes up on the mountain to receive God's word, what does the people do? Do they wait there earnestly, waiting for God's word? No, what do they do? They say, well... Moses has been gone a long time. Surely he must be dead. That God that brought us out there, he's probably dead too. So, you know, we're going to build our own God here, and we're going to worship it. Sorry. So that's what they did, right? What about the, the Levitical priesthood? Again, as we talked about a few weeks ago. That priest would have to go in, make an offering for himself, make a sacrifice for himself, try to get his sins forgiven and cleansed, and then go in and make an offering for you. And then what, he would come out later, and then what would happen to him? He would die. We can never, ever hold up our end of the deal. We couldn't. Every time you see through scripture when God says, hey, I am your God, you are my people, you need to do this. Has there ever been a time that we did it? <laughs> we constantly fall short. We constantly run away for other idols. We constantly turn our back on God. Therefore, he had to send his son to, again, take our side. So Jesus came as a human. And what did he do? He fulfilled them perfectly. When God says, here's what you must do as my people, what did Jesus do? He did it perfectly. He not only kept all of God's laws, he not only did everything God required of him, he also didn't do anything God says you shouldn't do. Both sides there. He kept it perfectly on our behalf. That's why he is a surety. He is is the one who brings us together. He doesn't just say, look, here's God, here's your people, y'all come and meet. No, he says, I have to... Fulfill your side. And I will also fulfill God's side because I'm God. He is a guarantee. And he will fulfill all aspects of the covenant. Both sides. And so what are the consequences of that? What happens because of what Jesus accomplished? The author of Hebrews tells us in verse 25. He says, consequently, he is able to save two the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them." I'll spend most of our time on this verse this morning discussing this verse. There's a lot here. This verse uh, is a pretty popular verse. Uh, Most old pastors and theologians have preached this verse many, many times. There are many sermons on this verse. Uh, One of my old pastors a long time ago he loved to quote this verse in most of his sermons. He would quote it often saying that, uh, that God is able to save from the guttermost to the uttermost those who draw near to God. So he loved quoting this verse. And it is a, a, a great verse. And so, again, I'll spend most of my time on this. But who is Jesus able to save here? Verse 25. Anyone who draws near to God through Jesus. does that mean anyone? does that mean male or female? does that mean rich or poor? does that mean those who are smart or those who are not? praise God it does those who grew up in church or those who didn't? those who know how to read well and those who don't? anyone who's red, white black or brown yes all people everywhere right all people everywhere Jesus is able to save we see this in Revelation right in the worship of Jesus our king it says a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and people and languages standing before the throne worshiping Jesus an amazing picture. People from all over the world. From all time. More people than we can number. Worshipping our Lord. What a great picture. What then must these people do? Is the next question I have in verse 25. What must they do to draw near to God? What does this look like? It's going to be a hard question for some of us. What does it look like? What does it really look like? Is it getting baptized? Is it going to church on Sundays? Is it bowing your knees in prayer? Is it the way you pray? Because truly there are many amazing, there are many people who can pray amazing prayers all the while running away from God. often we can go through the motions of Christianity. I love what Spurgeon says here. He says that we can break the Sabbath here in this building on Sunday just as easy we can break it at the park. We can break the Sabbath just as easy in this building here on Sunday as we can at the lake on Sunday. Good question I ask myself often. How many of us have ever left church on Sunday, happy that we had done our duty and come to church, checked that off our list of things that we must do for God, all the while complaining about the message, complaining about the preacher preaching too long, complaining about the hymns being too old, or that we didn't like the order of worship? That's not drawing near to God. That's going through the motions. It's going through the motions of a religion. And what's worse, often we do this. We come to church. We check that off our list. We've done this duty for God. We've done everything we think God commands of us, yet complaining about it the whole time. But yet then we tell God, look, because I've done this, I've done this for you. I've done my duty for you. I've come to church for you. Hey, now you need to bless me. Now you owe me. Because hey, I've done this for you. Look what I've done. Oh, not only that, I invited other people to church too. Now you really, really owe me. Now you owe me double God in the blessings. Because look what I have done for you. Bless me for it. You know, deep down, not to be harsh, but this is blasphemy. But it happens. We don't draw near to God. Instead, we draw near to his blessings, and we think that he owes us. We also try to draw near to God half-heartedly. We bring, bring half our lives to God. We try to keep the other half for ourselves. There are certain things we want to keep. We don't want God interfering with this certain aspects of our lives. God, I'll give you this much, but I'm keeping this. I don't want you interfering with this. This is stuff I really, really love. But really, if you want to draw near to God, you must bring your whole self, your whole life, everything. And again, I want to quote Spurgeon here when he says that we must bring our whole self. We cannot bring half of us and keep the other half away. Our whole being must be surrendered to the services of our maker. We must come to him with an entire dedication of ourselves, giving up all that we are and all that we shall be to be thoroughly devoted to his service. Otherwise, we have never come to God correctly. Spurgeon doesn't beat around the bush here. We often try to love the world and love Jesus. What does John say? First John 2:15, "Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father, what is not in him." And I believe the American Church is in trouble today. I believe most of you would uh, agree. we've talked about this often. The American church is in trouble today because we try to make the church like the world so we can draw worldly people into it. And what's the point? Why do we do this? To have good numbers? There's many churches that have these these, uh, these months of, of trying to baptize as many people as they can. What's the point? When we try to baptize as many people as we can, we create more false converts than real ones for what? Now we have people walking around living in the world yet calling themselves Christians. This is one reason I love to minister in Southeast Asia, because there you're either a Christian or you're not. Because when you give your life to Christ, you give up everything else because it's basically taking, taken away from you. So you're either a Christian, sold out for the Lord or you're not. I had one lady who wanted to be a translator for me there, but I told her she couldn't translate for me because she, she spoke really good English. I mean, she was really good, but she was not a Christ follower. She was not a Christian. And I told her, therefore, you can't translate for me because you don't actually know what I'm saying here. The Spirit is not in you to translate what I'm saying. I said, Do you understand that? She says, Yeah, okay, I understand. I said, Okay, well, repent of your sins, put your faith in Christ. She says, I can't. I said, why? She says, because that would offend my relatives, and it would offend my ancestors. I said, you would rather offend a holy and righteous God than your ancestors. And she says that at the moment, yes. I said, okay, you understand the consequences of that action? She says, yes. But then you know what she said? right, to that? I understand, but can, can we still be friends? Can I still hang out with you? Absolutely, you can. She said, okay, good. That's the difference. It didn't offend her. She didn't get mad at me and run away from me. She said, okay, I understand, but I still want to hang out with y'all. I want to be friends with y'all. There's no straddling the fence there. You're either sold out for the Lord or you're not. You're either a sold out Christian or you're not. And here in America, it's sad that we have to have these terms and we shouldn't, right? We shouldn't have to put words in front of a Christian to explain it. Oftentimes at work they say, you know, they're all Christians there, but they say, oh, Kevin, he's he's sold out Christian. He's a Bible-thumping Christian. He's all in. Us, we're just regular American Christians. Now we have radical Christians, right? We have sold out Christians, we have Bible-thumping Christians, and then we have regular old American Christians. And I believe that's the problem. I'm a little afraid that many of our regular American Christians are not really Christian at all. They try and walk with Jesus and the devil. They try to live in the world and in heaven. One foot in, one foot out. that doesn't work. It doesn't work. Jesus says that, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? He's not our Lord. We are not living for him. He also says in John 3, 36, that what? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will walk will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We will not walk in darkness. We may fall into sin, right? We still have flesh, we still fall into sin, but we're not going to run to it and waller in it and love it. John fourteen, fifteen, he says, Again, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Again, this is not a suggestion. This is a requirement from the king of kings. He's telling his followers, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He also says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. We cannot say we love Jesus and live like the world. It's impossible. We must draw near to God with our whole being, our whole life, with everything that we do, with everything that we think, with all that we say, with our fit, everything should be given totally to the Lord. Drawing near to God means loving Him above all else. A radical word that Jesus says in, his, in, in our love and our devotion to Him. He said it's like what? Hating our own life, hating our own spouse, our husband, our wife. It's like hating our own children. It's like hating our own parents. He says our love for him should be so much higher that it's like hatred for everything else. I think that's hard for some people to accept. I think it's hard for some of us to hear. Because I believe many Americans worship their children. They do in Asia. There, they They will tell you they do. They'll admit to it. I believe many of us here do, but we don't like to admit it. Many of us worship our children. Many of us worship our spouse. Many of us worship our parents, our ancestors. There's some of us who worship our job or money. Jesus says, "What? Well, what is the profit of man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul?" He also says a radical word saying that what well, it's easier for the camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to inherit eternal life. I believe the disciples understood that well because they said, well who can inherit eternal life then? Who can go to heaven? He says, well man, it's impossible. But then what did he say? With God, all things are possible. So we cannot serve God and money. Spurgeon again says that if we are to draw near to God, then that means leaving something else, leaving other things behind. For going to God, we're going to leave other stuff. We must leave our sinful lifestyle. We must leave our good works and our bad works, right? They won't save us. We must leave our self righteousness behind they are not good we are not good we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God we must leave all of this behind to truly follow Christ to truly draw near to God and the third question how do we draw near to God through Christ through Jesus we cannot do it on our own Can we see that in our verse. Those who draw near to God through him. Through him. Keep my time evangelizing and just talking to people often, I have many people say to me or tell me, I I worship God my own way. I do it how I want. I don't have to go to church. I can worship God. I worship God out, out in creation. I hunt and fish a lot, and I've heard many people tell me, here's how I worship God. Out in creation. I worship God while I'm hunting. I worship God while I'm fishing. I worship God when I'm out in, under the stars, or out, just out in his creation, enjoying what he has done. I worship God that way. But as we discussed earlier, Jesus commands us to worship him a certain way. And if he demands us to worship him a certain way, then I would expect that this is the way we should worship God. Because the bottom line is, he will not accept those other kinds of worship. He will not accept it. We cannot come to God and worship however we want. Again, Jesus says, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. We cannot take our prayers, write them down, and take them to the throne on our own. We cannot get in. We cannot skip past the priest and just take our prayers to God like we don't need him. What do you think will happen if you just try to skip past the priest and take your own prayers to the Father on your own? Your sin will find you out. Eventually in the end as you die and stand before him Jesus will say depart from me you workers of lawlessness I never knew you the scariest words in scripture to me that Jesus says depart from me from me I never knew you you workers of lawlessness we discussed this a few weeks ago actually in our men's breakfast We're discussing prayer, how we just cannot go to God in prayer on our own strength or on our own way. Uh, After the sin of the garden, we've all now, we're sinners, we're all barred from God, we're banned from God's presence, so we need a mediator. Our prayers must be put on the chest of Christ, sprinkled by his righteous blood, therefore cleansing uh, our unrighteousness. ...and then brought into the presence of God the Father through Christ. I love what Church Father Ambrose says here. He says that Jesus is our mouth through which we speak to the Father. Jesus is our eye through which we see the Father. And Jesus is our right hand in which we go to the Father. Unless he intercedes for us, there is no conversing with the Father... We can't get to him on and on. There's no other way. As we prayed earlier, all other religions, you have to try to find some way to get to God. But guess what? We're sinful. He's not. We need someone to cleanse us of our sins in order to draw us to the Father. And again, Jesus says, well, he's the true vine. And if you don't, do not abide in him abide in Him, be with Him, be a part of Him. If you do not abide in Him, you're you're like a branch that's thrown away into the fire and burned. Again, rough, rough words from our Lord, but they are true. Number four, Jesus always lives to intercede for us. He says, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for them. Again, I love those words. He always lives to make intercession for us. This is what Jesus does. I love his high priestly prayer in John 17. Actually, I want to go read some of that because I want us to see what Jesus does on our behalf for us constantly, okay, constantly. John chapter 17, verse 1, He says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have been given authority, since you have given authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave to me. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Solid words there. He said, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Again, what we said earlier. What does God's people do? They keep his word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave to me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. And then the next verse is awesome. He says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. That's what he's praying for us. Keep them in your name. Keep them, Father. When I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And what? Not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. He has not lost one of us. He will not lose one of us. He says, But now I'm coming to you, and these things will speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world. Just like we said earlier, they're not of the world. We're not of the world. We can't be in the world and in Christ. I do not ask that they that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Again, Christ praying that the Father will keep us from the evil one. Is that not amazing? He's constantly praying for us. They are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now he's praying for our sanctification. The Father, the, Jesus, our mediator, is praying to the Father that we be sanctified. That he sanctify us and grow us. What I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now he's praying that we'll be in them, we'll be a part of them, we'll be one with them. Again, amazing prayers, and I could keep going because I love chapter 17, but it's amazing what our intercessor does for us he intercedes for us constantly praying for us saying sanctify them in truth how do we get sanctified in truth because he says your word is truth in the word we are sanctified Jesus does this for us no one else could do that only Christ and then he intercedes perfectly because he is perfect we see in verse 26 and 27 of our text for it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest holy, innocent unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself you can just preach that text there's so much there as we began our sermon God doesn't just repeat himself in scripture he he constantly heightens his promises he heightens his grace he heightens his saving actions as we move towards the new testament so we move forward we see that the earthly priesthood wouldn't cut it we still had a sin problem we couldn't draw near to God in that way the old temple system you and I wouldn't even be able to go into the temple to worship do you know that if we went to the temple to try to worship God how far could we get okay you and I us in here we'd be way out there right in the The Gentile area, the Gentile courts, that's where we could make it to. That's where we could get to worship God. Guess what else was happening in the Gentile courts? There's money changers out there. They're they're selling the sacrifices out there. So they're taking up a lot of room. So guess how much? We didn't have much room at all to go worship God, right? We could get there, and that's as far as we could get. Surely couldn't go into the temple. And we absolutely could not go into the Holy of Holies. To worship God. We couldn't get in there to draw near to God. We couldn't even get to the altar. We'd be way outside. But even for the Jewish people. Only the high priest. For that year could enter the Holy of Holies. And if he did that with a sinful heart, he could die in there. So no one really drew near to God through that. None of that could get us there. So what? God increased his mercy and his grace by sending his own son. Jesus being our high priest he broke down the lattice that kept us out of the temple area he broke down the curtain he ripped the curtain in half that kept us out of the holy of holies how? because he is holy because he is innocent because he is unstained because he is separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens he could enter in he could tear it apart and he could say to us what? y'all come in Follow me. My shed blood will cleanse you of your unrighteousness. You can come in and draw near to God. I love what the theologian Matthew Henry says here. He says, observe the description of the personal holiness of Christ. He is free from all habits or principles of sins, not having the least disposition to it in his nature. No sin dwells in him. Not the least sinful inclination, though such dwells in the best of Christians. He is harmless, free from all actual transgression. <clears throat> he did no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. He is undefiled. And he says it's it's hard for us to keep ourselves pure so that's not to partake in the guilt of another man's sin so he said if you're hanging out with other people and they're sinning you're you're kind of going to to fall into that sin with them he said not so with Jesus he said but none need to be dismayed who come to God in the name of his beloved son he says let them be assured that he will deliver them in the time of trial and suffering in the time of prosperity in the hour of death and in the day of judgment he will deliver them When he said, it is finished on the cross, it was finished. In that time, Jesus bore the wrath of the Father upon himself. He broke down those barriers that kept us separated from God. Not only did he tear down the lattice that kept us as Gentiles in the outside court. He tore the curtain of the Holy of Holies. Not only that, he eventually tore the whole temple down. He is our temple. He is our place of worship. He is a sacrifice. He is the perfect high priest. Now he says, come in. Come in. Draw near. Draw near to God. Again, the Puritan Thomas Manton says that in the Old Testament, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies, not for himself alone, but for the people having the names of the 12 tribes on his chest and shoulders. Right? And this this wardrobe he had to wear, they had these on there. He was representing them. So Jesus, he has entered once and for all on behalf of us, bearing the sins of us and representing all who call upon him there and they are graven on his heart as he entered he represents us So, what does this look like for us again John tells us first John 1 9 most of y'all know the verse right if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness right that's what it looks like for us we turn from our sins we turn from our worldly loves and our worldly habits and we turn towards Christ, we turn towards him and we follow him. We walk in his ways, we walk in his statutes, we walk in his rules and his commands. Then I love verse 28 as we wrap up. He says, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son has been made perfect forever. One final contrast between the two systems. On the one hand, the law points men in their weakness. But on the other hand, we have a son who has been made perfect forever. The contrast can't be any greater. The theologian Michael Kruger says that within this contrast is the heart of the gospel. We are broken. We are sinful people. Separated from a holy God. And no ordinary priest. No earthly system. No animal sacrifice is enough to bridge that gap. What we need is a perfect son of God who became a human being to represent us before God as our great high priest forever. Because of his perfect obedience and indestructible life, we can have a great confidence that our sins are forgiven. And that we now can draw near to God with confidence. We can draw near to God with confidence. We can draw near because what he has done and what he has accomplished. The Savior is available, again, to who? To all. To all who call upon his name. To all who turn from their sinful lifestyle and turn to Christ. It's available to all. Why trust in anything else? Repent of your sins. Put your faith in Christ. He is our great and indestructible forever high priest. And for that we worship him. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for your son. Lord, without him we would have no hope. Without him we would be left in our sins. Without him, we would be wandering around helpless. So thank you for sending him. Thank you for sending him to live the life we could never live. And again, to die the death we deserved. Lord, thank you that in his resurrection and ascension, he made a way for us to draw near to you. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for coming, and not just coming upon us, but indwelling us, for changing us, for sanctifying us, for giving us that peace that surpasses all understanding, for showing us who Christ is, for showing us who the Father is, and for changing us, constantly, sanctifying us, and sealing us, Knowing that nothing can ever take you away from us. Lord, I pray that today has been glorifying to you. I pray that this Lord's day, that it was a fragrant offering to you. Lord, I pray that we will leave here with your joy. And in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as we